Uh, we're going to pick up where we left off last week in uh, verse 26 of um, Luke chapter 1. So, um, if you'll stand and join me there, Luke 1, starting in verse 26, uh, we're going to read uh, the account of the angel showing up to Mary and Mary's response uh, to the good news that Gabriel brings to her um, through verse 56. So, let's read it together. It says this, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women. And blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, and here's Mary's soul just breaking out into song at this good news. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me and, is, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Well, let's pray together. Father, as we cover a, a big section of your word, um, God, I pray that you would um, be with us. God, that your spirit would teach us, that your children would have the eyes to see and the ears to hear. Um, God, your word, uh, that you would use it, God, to magnify your, your goodness and your glory and ultimately your son. Um, God, you tell us as your son is lifted up that you will draw men to yourself. Um, so God, I pray um, that as we just spend the next few minutes lifting up your son, God, that you would draw people to yourself. God, your saints, that you would draw to yourself to be more like you and to, to grow and depend on you more. And God, to those who don't know you this morning, that you would draw them to yourself. God, that they would see the goodness and the mercy and the salvation of God. And they would respond as Mary does. God, with their humble estate, recognizing their need for a savior. 
And God, they would respond with joy and with faith. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can have a seat. If you remember last week, um, we looked at the visit of Gabriel um, to Zechariah. He is a priest. He's in the temple. He's fulfilling his priestly duties. He's offering up incense and sacrifices. And Gabriel shows up and tells Zechariah um, that his wife, um, who is advanced in years, as Zechariah says, is going to have a baby. And Zechariah is confused and doubts and says, hey, we're old. I don't know if you know, you know who you showed up to, but like we aren't able to do this. And because of this, Zechariah um, is not able to speak. Um, Gabriel just says, hey, I'm from the, the throne of God. And essentially, God puts the mute button on Zechariah for the next nine months. That, hey, you were slow to believe. You did not trust you know, an angel from the throne of God standing in front of you. You're not going to speak for a bit. And Zechariah has to leave the temple, um, delayed from his service. So everyone's waiting and wondering what's going on. And he's essentially doing the whole Pictionary deal, like trying to tell people what happened. And if you remember the context, there's 400 years that have gone by. And no one has heard a prophetic word from God in 400 years. So you can imagine how confused these people were. And this is where we find ourselves again. 400 years of silence. From the time that the book of Malachi, the last prophetic word of the Lord ends, God does not speak prophetically through an angel, through a prophet, through anyone for 400 years. Now, side note, I mentioned that one day we would do a sermon, um, and we, when we cover the Old Testament in one sermon, we've done that a couple times here. Um, if you remember what happens in those 400 years, uh, we don't see any prophetic words, but who arises to power? The Old Testament ends with Persia being the world power. Um, the king of Persia, through the, the work of God, through Esther, allows Israel to return home. But in those 400 years, who's the next world power to show up? It's the Greeks under Alexander the Great. And what do the Greeks do? They conquer the known world, and they bring to the known world a common language a common economic system. Now, everyone is speaking Greek. The, Old, the New Testament's written in Greek. Everybody knew Greek because of the Hellenistic period where Alexander the Great and the Greeks were conquering the world. And now everyone can, can conduct business and do economics and, and speak to one another and all of those things. But then who comes after Greece? Rome. Julius Caesar and Rome takes power and they conquer the world. And what does Rome bring? All what lead to Rome? Roads. So they bring a common road system. So even in the 400 years of silence where God's not audibly speaking, he's up to something. And what is he doing? He is preparing the world with a common language and a common road system to take the good news of the gospel to the ends of the earth. Now everybody can understand what we're speaking and everybody has access through the road system that Rome built to take the good news of the gospel to the ends of the earth. That's what's so amazing. But let's put ourselves in the shoes of Mary and Zechariah and Elizabeth. Um, there's two people right now on the planet that know that um, the, most, the, the most important three decades of human history are about to begin. And one of them's muted, right? One of them can't talk. And where is God? He is occupying himself with two humble, obscure women. One barren, one a virgin. And the three most important decades in all of human history are about to begin. And um, R.C. Sproul, he, he talks about the, the resurrection and he says, here's why we know the resurrection is real because if you were trying to fabricate this, who's the first, person, or the first people that Jesus appears to after he rose from the dead? 
to women. And he says in those days, if you were trying to write a believable story, that's not what you would do. You would go to the men, you would go to the officials, and it was just how um, society viewed women in those days, but you wouldn't just show up to two women when no one else was around. And that's exactly what Jesus does then, and that's exactly what Jesus does here. Not Jesus literally, but God, through these prophetic words of the angels, shows up to these two women, one barren, one a virgin. And imagine, let's just, before we, we read this text, imagine being anywhere from 15 to 18, young girl, you're engaged, you're a virgin, you've got all of these plans, no word from God your whole life, and an angel shows up and says, hey, no, we've got plans. And you're gonna be pregnant, you're gonna, the Holy Spirit's gonna conceive a baby in you, and you're gonna give birth to the savior of the world. How would you respond? Would it be my soul magnifies the Lord? Let it be according to your word. Let's look and let's marvel um, at the faith and the humble estate of these two women, and specifically Mary. Um, It says this in verse 26. It says, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Now notice, remember we talked about this. You've got sixth month and you've got these two places. Luke's gospel is littered with time stamps and geographical stamps, and six month here is not referring to June. Um, if you look a couple verses down in verse uh, 36 of chapter one, he's referring to the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. He's not referring to the sixth month of the calendar year. Um, the angel says that Elizabeth is six months pregnant here in just a couple minutes, but that's what he's referring to. But he gives us the time, he gives us the place, and he says to um, a virgin named Mary, Now, if you remember how we ended last week, um, Elizabeth gets pregnant, and what does she do? She kind of secludes herself for the next five months. Um, It says this in uh, verse 24 of chapter one. Uh, Most likely because uh, the the scripture says that there was great reproach on her because she was barren. And imagine, you know, it takes a bit to start showing if you're pregnant. Imagine her going and telling everyone this great news, this old barren woman. Imagine how much more reproach she would get as she goes to start to share this news and she's not having any physical evidence of a baby. So most likely, that's why she goes and secludes herself for five months. Now it's a month later. We're in the sixth month. And an angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. So the scriptures tell us that Mary was a virgin. Now this is describing her state before the conception, but also during the pregnancy. That Mary is a virgin throughout the pregnancy, never been with a man. In fact, most theologians say she was most likely never kissed by anyone other than her own immediate family. She has never been with a man. And heresies have shown up all throughout the the church age trying to say that just her her virginity here in the text meant that she was just young and she was innocent. Um, It means so much more than that. It means never been with a man. Why else would the angel have to say, for nothing is impossible with God? That this is God doing the impossible. This this isn't just a, a human conception from someone who was mildly innocent. In fact, we know that Mary was a sinner just like you and me, 
A couple verses later, she will say, my soul rejoices in God, my savior. That this was a divine act. This was a divine conception. We'll talk more about that in just a minute as the scriptures give us more details. But it says that Mary was betrothed. Now, this was a legally binding engagement in those days. Um, If you remember in Matthew chapter one, um, this is why the angel has to show up to Joseph because when he hears that Mary's pregnant, what does it say? It says he resolves to divorce her quietly. That he wants to maintain her honor and her dignity and not put her to open shame or reproach. And he's going to decide, hey, I'm just going to, to end this quietly And an angel shows up and says, don't, right? Because this is from the Lord. This is a divine act of God's grace from the Lord. But it says that Joseph was from the house of David. Now, this is important because all of the Old Testament prophecies about the the lineage of the Messiah said that he would come from Abraham and through the line of David, that this would be a physical descendant of David. In 2 Samuel 7, when God gives David, this prophetic word, he tells him that, that his son will build him a house. And we know that the, the, the near fulfillment of that was David's physical son, Solomon, would build him a house. But David, the far fulfillment is that David would have another son. And he would build another house, a spiritual house. And it says that his throne, that the throne of David uh, and would be eternal and it would stay in David's line forever. So all throughout the Old Testament, the prophets The Israelites, the people, were looking for a physical descendant of David who would be a Messiah. Now, they weren't looking for a humble, lowly baby. They were looking for this triumphant political leader. They weren't looking for the way that that God and his sovereign plan decided for the Messiah to show up. But they knew that it would be an eternal throne and it would be a descendant of David. And what does the angel say? Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. And the root word for O favored one, O favored one's a big word in the Greek with a couple different compounds in it. But the root word is the word grace. It's the Greek word charis. And it means grace. So he says, greetings, O blessed one, O graced one. The Lord is with you. Imagine hearing that. 400 years of silence. Never heard a word from God in your lifetime. And this anywhere from 15 to 18 young girl sees an angel and hears, hey, you are blessed, the grace of God is upon you, you're favored, and the Lord is with you. You can imagine you would start to go, for what? Why? What's about to happen? And that's Mary's response as she is troubled and confused and perplexed. To the point where the angel in verse 30 says, the angel has to say, don't be afraid, Mary, for you found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called son of the most high, and the Lord God will give him to the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Here we see the angel specifically saying that this baby would be the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy. He would be a descendant of David, God's gonna give him the throne and he will reign over the house of Jacob, over Israel forever. And of his kingdom, there will what? Be no end. It would be an eternal kingdom. But the angel looks to her and says, you found favor with God. Mary, you have found the grace of God. It's the same line um, in Genesis 6 that uh, Moses writes about Noah. Um, After 
sin had run rampant in the world in Genesis 5, and everyone was dying, that the wages of our sin is death, and there was just so much death and so much destruction that the genealogy of Genesis 5 just is littered with, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. And Genesis 6 opens with God says, I'm going to righteously judge the world. But what does it say? It says in Genesis 6, 8, and Noah found favor with the Lord. Not, was, not Noah was sinless, not Noah was perfect. Read the rest of the story, we know that's not true. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And then the angel looks at Mary and says, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. The name Jesus um, means Yahweh is salvation or God is salvation. God is my salvation. God is our salvation. God saves. Amazing. This little girl, here's this message that you're gonna have a baby and you're going to name him God is our salvation. This human being will be named God is our salvation. The very essence, the reason for the coming of Jesus is God showing the world that he is our salvation. The very essence of you coming to Jesus, if that's you this morning and you wanna put your faith in Jesus, that's the message that you're proclaiming is I am not my salvation. I can't earn it, I can't deserve it, I can't be good enough for it, I can't obey enough for it. God is my salvation, not me. That's what it means to come to Jesus. It's confessing that you need a salvation that you can't produce. And God in Christ is your salvation. Acts 4, verse 12, it's a famous verse. It says, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. God is our only salvation. And the angel tells Mary he will be great and called the most high. What does it mean he will be great? It means in everything he will be great. He will be great in his word. He will be great in deed. He will be great in character. He will be great in grace, in truth, in love, in righteousness, in holiness, in compassion, in his patience. And then she says he will be great and called the son of the most high. Um, this name first shows up in Genesis 14 uh, when Melchizedek shows up to Abram and blesses him. Um, he uses the phrase, the most high God. Um, it says, and you can make a note in your Bible, Genesis 14, 18 through 20. Uh, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brings bread and wine to Abram and he blessed him and said, blessed Abram by God most high. And we see that this name after this moment continues to kind of show up throughout the Old Testament. Uh, one of my favorites is when um, in the book of Daniel, when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are thrown into the furnace. Um, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, calls God the most high. Um, he, he shouts at them in the furnace and it says, servants of the most high God, come out, come here. After he sees that they weren't burned up and there was a fourth person in the furnace. It says, servants of the God most high, get out of here. Like, come, come explain to me what's going on here. It's beautiful. But what does the angel say to Mary? That he will be son of the most high God. He will be great. And then it says in verse 34, and Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? And last week we saw Gabriel leave the throne of God and give this message to a barren woman and now he's appearing to a virgin woman and he's about to explain to her how he's going to do, God is going to do an even greater work. That she's gonna have a baby and it's not gonna be by human means. 
but by divine means. And the angel answers her question, which is a very logical question. Hey, how is this baby gonna come about? How am I going to birth the Messiah? And what does the angel say in verse 35? The angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. So here's the answer. How's Mary gonna have this baby? What does the angel say? The Holy Spirit is going to come upon you and the Most High God will overshadow you. Kids and students, this is why we have to understand that Jesus' birth is different than every other birth that has ever happened on planet Earth. Jesus' birth is very different than our birth. When you and I were born, we were created at the moment of conception in our mother's womb. We are created beings. We have not eternally existed forever. You and I had a, a moment of creation. Jesus is not like us in that way. Jesus has always existed. Jesus is not created. Scripture tells us in John 1 that in the beginning, the very beginning, all of time was the Word, Jesus. And the Word was with God and the Word was God and he was with God in the beginning. That Jesus didn't have a creation point. Not like our birth. We're created at the moment of conception. Jesus was not. Jesus is incarnated. It's very different. It's, it's a big word, but all it means is to be united with flesh, to take on human flesh. So when we celebrate the arrival of Jesus at Christmas, it's not we're celebrating that Jesus was created when we say that he was born. We're celebrating the fact that our eternal God left heaven and took on human skin. That's the beauty of Christmas. Because Jesus isn't created, he's always existed. But he looked down at humanity who was broken and who was sinful and could not save themselves. And the beauty of Christmas is not Jesus' creation, it's his incarnation. It's that the eternal God took on human flesh and was born in the likeness of men. Why? So that he could be born like us, he could live the way we were supposed to live, he could shed his blood for our sins, and that he could die for us, and he could be raised to life in our place. That's why we celebrate Christmas. Jesus is perfect deity. When he became a human, he did not give up his deity. Colossians 1 and 2 says, in him the fullness of the deity dwells bodily. That Jesus didn't give up any of his divine power, but it's perfect deity, united with full humanity, and I can't explain how that works all of the time. But that's what scripture presents to us is Jesus being born of a human. That's why we celebrate Christmas. And what does this mean for us? The only person, if you think about the theological impl implications of the incarnation, is ever since Genesis 3, there was a separation. Isaiah 59, 2 says that our sin separates us from God. That ever since Genesis 3, there's a separation between God and man. And unless there's a perfect, righteous, holy one, we can't bridge that separation. Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden the moment that they sin. Who's the only one that can remove the separation between God and man? Someone who is perfectly both God and man. Jesus was the perfect sacrifice 
to bridge the gap between man and God because he was fully man and he was fully God. And he met the standard of God's righteousness and he died on the cross and shed his blood for all of our unrighteousness. That's what's so beautiful about the Christmas season. And then the angel says, therefore the child to be born will be called holy. That this baby, how can you call a human baby holy from the moment that they're born? This is the only time you can. This is the only baby who's born completely holy from the moment of their conception. Scripture tells us that ever since Genesis 3, every baby that's born, the Psalms tell us, is conceived in sin and born in iniquity. Romans 5 tells us, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. That's Romans 5.12, if you want the reference. How can this baby be born without sin? Because the Holy Spirit will conceive this baby and the Holy Spirit will overshadow Mary thus not inheriting the curse of Adam, the curse of sin. Mary did not contribute to the holiness of Jesus. Mary was a sinner, as we said, just like you and I are, that the Holy Spirit is the one who overshadowed her. The Holy Spirit conceived this baby in her womb, and that's why he is holy. A sinful woman cannot bear a sinless man unless the Holy Spirit overshadows her. And that's what's so great about Jesus' birth. And then the angel says this as some further confirmation and affirmation. Your cousin Elizabeth has conceived and she's six months pregnant. For nothing is impossible with God. And now notice this. And I love just the kindness of God to say, Mary, hey, I want to show you that I'm at work. I want to show you that the most important three decades of all of human history is about to begin. That your cousin is pregnant. She's six months pregnant. And notice Mary's response and kind of compare it to Zechariah's response. Zechariah's, you know, hey, I don't know if you know who we are. I don't know if you think we can do this. Look at Mary's response in verse 38. And Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. What a response. This is one of the reasons that we call Mary blessed. All of her plans just got interrupted, big time. Hey, you're gonna birth the Messiah and the Holy Spirit's gonna conceive a baby in you. Imagine the reproach that she's gonna get from the community that hasn't heard from God in 400 years as she starts to show a baby and she's telling them, hey, here's, here's how all of this happened. The Holy Spirit did this and this is my you know, fiance and we have not been together. Imagine the response from a community that hasn't heard from God in 400 years. Yeah, sure, right? And I'm Peter Pan, right? Like, nobody would have believed her. Imagine all of the shame that she's about to experience. Imagine the reproach, and her response is very different from Zechariah's. It's, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Church, my prayer is that when God throws interruptions in our life, when God brings seasons of suffering in our life, that this is how we respond. Whether it's good news or bad news, that I am the Lord's servant. Let it be to me according to your word. Paul Washer says that submitting our lives to the word of God is not radical Christianity. It's basic Christianity. That the basic fundamental act of Christianity is submitting your life to the word of God. 
And she hears the word and she says, I'm the Lord's servant. Let it be to me according to your word. And then it says in verse 39, in those days, and I love that phrase, in those days, Luke's not starting another story, he's connecting the story. Hey, in those same days, he's connecting these two stories, these two women, these two cousins. He says, Mary arose and went with haste to the hill country, to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. Now, why do you think Mary would arise with haste and go see Elizabeth? Well, one, because her cousin was pregnant and she wants to go see. Like, hey, is this actually happening as the Lord said? It would be further confirmation of what God is doing. But two, out of all the people on the planet, who do you think would believe Mary about the news that she was just told? Her cousin Elizabeth. There's two other people on planet Earth that would believe the news that Mary just heard and one of them can't speak. So she's like, I'm going to the other one and I'm going to greet her and see her. This, the other person who ironically but so intentionally by God who has been miraculously given a baby. Mary says, I'm going to her and I'm gonna tell her the good news of what's just happened. And when she gets there, she finds out that Elizabeth already knew the news because it says when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped or leapt in her womb. And here's what's so fascinating about this. We see John the Baptist from the womb already preparing the way for the Messiah announcing the presence of the Lord. Two babies in the womb. One's leaping because the Messiah is in his presence. John, the, the prophesied forerunner, the one of one, the one person chosen to prepare the way of the Lord is doing it from the womb. Here he is. The savior of the world is here and begins to leap. Side note, when does scripture, and this is not the point of the text, so it's not gonna be the point of the sermon, but it's a detail that I wanna bring out uh, when does scripture recognize the child in the womb as a baby? The moment of conception. If you think about this, Mary is days conceived. And scripture recognizes Jesus. John wasn't leaping for no one. Jesus is in the womb of Mary in those days, when, in whatever that travel span looked like. And John leaps at the presence of another baby that biblically we recognize babies in the womb at the moment of conception. Scripture does and so do we. But the baby leaps and he says, blessed are you, or Mary, uh, Elizabeth says, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And I love this. Mary just, or Elizabeth blesses Mary. Not because Mary had earned it, not because Mary had deserved it, but she's blessed because Elizabeth can clearly see, hey, the grace of God is upon you. You've received the kindness and the favor of God. You are a blessed woman and more blessed than you, the ultimate blessing is what? The fruit of your womb, the Messiah, the ultimate blessing for the world. And it says this in verse 43. And I love this question. You see that Elizabeth's heart is so in tune with Mary's. Look at their humble estate. Luke goes out of his way through this whole chapter to show these two obscure women and how humble and how lowly and how anticipatory they are for the Messiah. And I love this question, verse 43. And why is this granted to me that the mother of who? That the mother of my Lord should come to me. How amazing is that? In the womb, 
Elizabeth is looking at Mary and saying, how could this be that the mother of my Lord and Savior has shown up to me? What faith? How beautiful is that? How am I so fortunate to deserve this visit? Beautiful to think about. The mother of my Lord. We sing it in, uh, I forget the, whichever Christmas song it is. Um, it's the line, maker of Mary, now Mary's son. That the one who created Mary is now in the womb of Mary. The eternal God who before the foundations of the world created all of us, specifically Mary, is now in her very womb. How beautiful is that? And Elizabeth recognizes it. And what humility, what a line. Why is this granted to me? How could I be so fortunate to receive this grace? And it says this, for behold, verse 44, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Here's further evidence, not to belabor the point. We see babies in the womb feeling emotion. That this baby felt joy in the womb and is leaping. Why? Because the Messiah is here. I am in the very presence of the long-awaited Messiah, leaping for joy in the womb. Days conceived, and Elizabeth is calling him Lord. Imagine, can you imagine worshiping a baby as Lord? If you think about it, these two aren't the only ones. And Mary is, in a couple verses, is gonna say, my soul rejoices in God, my Savior. Hey, that this baby is gonna be my Savior. But then later you see shepherds and wise men show up and they're worshiping a baby. Imagine worshiping an infant as Lord. What humility and what faith does that take to bow down to a baby who can't even speak human words yet and worship him as Savior and Lord? What great humility and what great faith. Which is why it says, blessed is she who believed. Beautiful. Specifically for Mary, her belief gave her the great privilege of carrying the Messiah in her womb. But ultimately, the greatest blessing, this verse applies to us, is our Messiah has visited us. And blessed is he or she who what? Not who deserves it. Not who's been good enough for it. Better watch out. Better not cry. Right? Better be good. Straighten up. Because Jesus is coming and he sees you when you're sleeping and all of those kind of things. So you better behave. That's not the message of Christmas. The message of Christmas is God knows we don't deserve his arrival. And he's merciful and he's kind and he shows up and blessed are those who what? Believe. We are blessed not because we've earned his coming, not because we've earned his sacrifice. We are blessed because God has been gracious to show up for us. And we're blessed when we believe. And Mary responds in song. And I wanna just quickly walk through her song. And we're actually gonna sing this song. People more talented than I have gone through and taken Mary's song and put it into words, into lyrics, into melodies. And we're gonna sing it as we respond today. But look at how Mary sings. And it's no accident. I just wanna say there's no accident that Mary responds in song. Because when your soul recognizes and you come to comprehend that you're a lowly sinner deserving of God's judgment. And instead, God shows up in the form of a human being as a savior.
to pay the price for your sins and give you eternal life, the only response is to break out in song and in worship and say, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices and all that's within me. That's our only response is when I truly realize that all I deserve is God's judgment and his wrath and all he has given me is his grace and he took the very wrath on himself. The only response is to break out in song and say, my soul magnifies the Lord. I don't deserve any of this. And this is Mary's response after all of these events have taken place. Verse 46, and Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in who? In God, my Savior. Why does our soul magnify? Why do our spirits rejoice? For he has looked upon the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. This is our only response to the gospel. Notice the order of this narrative. God is gracious towards Mary. He extends his grace to her. She is humble. She believes. She knows she needs a savior. She receives. And her response is worship. It's not she did enough. She earned enough. She behaved enough. She said, God is my salvation. She received the free gift of God's grace in Christ. And her response is my spirit rejoices, my soul magnifies the Lord. Verse 49, for he who is mighty has done great things for me. You see it? He who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those, not who've earned it, not who are righteous, not who are good enough, not who behave enough, not who kept the law perfectly. His mercy is for those who fear him. And that word fear is hard to translate in English. It doesn't mean fear like I'm terrified of him, but we also kind of downplay it to like respect where it's just like, hey, we tip our hat to Jesus. It's, it's neither of those things. It's awe and it's reverence in light of what God has done. She sees, you know what stabilizes her in the midst of all of this that's about to happen? is the one who has authority, the one who created it all, sees me. And he's lavished his grace upon me. You know what's gonna stabilize you in rough seasons of your life? Is when you stop and say, the one who has all authority, the one who created it all, the one who governs it all, he sees me. And he's lavished his grace upon me. You know what's gonna get you through that cancer diagnosis? When you say, the one who has all authority, he sees me. And he's shown his grace to me. Whatever your season of suffering is, this is the only thing that can get us through, is the one who created it all and governs it all and is in charge of it all. He sees me and he has lavished his grace upon me. He's been merciful to me in my lowly and broken estate. Our son is doing this thing where we can't leave the room. And it's not that we have to interact with him all the time. It's not that we have to constantly be playing. But for some reason, if we leave the room, it's just tears and where did you go? And so we pick him up and we set him in our bed as we get ready and those kind of things. And it's just something stabilizing about, hey, the, one, the people who have authority see me. They're in control and they see me. They're watching me. They know me. Um, a pastor that I respect 
tremendously tells the story that he was at this conference and there was so much pressure around the conference uh, because it was the first you know, annual conference. They were kicking things off. It was this new speaker trying this new event and kind of the, the head of the whole conference was just walking in stress and anxiety and trying to figure all this out. And he said, everybody's in the room. It's the first night. You know, they built up all this hype. You know, the music's going, the countdown's going. And then as soon as the lights go up and the director of the conference comes to welcome everybody, everybody's on the floor and his like six-year-old son is in the balcony and just starts going, hey, dad, hey, dad, hey, dad, hey, dad, hey, dad, and just starts screaming. And this pastor that I was listening to is backstage going, oh my goodness, like plane just crashed. There's no, like, how do you recover from this? And he said that the director of the conference just stopped what he was doing, looked up, smiled at his son and said, hey, son. And his son stopped and just sat down and smiled. And he said from that point on, it didn't care what he said. He had the whole room's attention. Why? Because there's something stabilizing about the one who has authority, the one who's in control, the one who's the boss of all of this stuff. Hey, he sees me and he's lavished his grace upon me. And he knows me. So I don't know what season you're in, but look at Mary's song. This is ultimately our song of our salvation. Is my soul magnifies the Lord, why? Because I am lowly and broken and I can't save myself. Give me a thousand lifetimes, it doesn't matter. I'm going to fail every single time. I am broken and in a lowly estate and my soul rejoices, why? Because my God sees me. And he who is mighty has done great things for me. He's mighty enough to obey the standard of the law. He's mighty enough to endure the sufferings of the cross. And he's mighty enough to rise from the grave. Mary's song is our song. That when we come to Christ, we're rejoicing because he who is mighty has done great things for us. And his mercy is for those who fear him. It says this, As we close, it says in verse 51, he has shown great strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Look at how many times the humble estate shows up. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. Here it is again. Those who marvel at the Messiah at Christmas time are those who know they need a savior. We said this last week. But if you are not marveling, if every year Christmas to you is just we got to get through the logistics, we got these events, we got to buy these presents, and your soul doesn't marvel at the arrival of the Messiah, it's probably because somewhere along the way you've convinced yourself that you don't need him. Those who are humble and broken and lowly and know that they can't save themselves marvel at the fact that the Messiah has come. And I think it's a good warning for all of us. That at some point this Christmas season, I don't stop and recognize my great need and the the wonder that the fact that God would take on human flesh for me, then it's probably because somewhere along the way I've convinced myself that, hey, I've got this figured out. Those who didn't care for Jesus' birth were those who who were self-righteous. Herod, who thought he was God, and the scribes and the Pharisees who thought they were good enough. Oh, cool, another baby? Yeah, we'll see if that lasts. Those who think they're God are threatened by Jesus' birth, as Herod was. Those who think they're righteous just don't care much for Jesus' birth. But you see Mary lowly and broken and says, my soul magnifies the Lord. 
This is what Jesus said his followers would be like in Matthew chapter five. What does he say those who are blessed? They're poor in spirit, right? They realize they're spiritually bankrupt. They mourn over their sin and they hunger and thirst for a righteousness that they can't produce. That's the lowly estate of followers of Jesus. He says this in 54, he's helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy and he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. God's been faithful to his promises all throughout the Old Testament. And then Luke tells us in verse 56, and Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. This is right up until John would be born. I don't know why. I think just from the context, it looks like Mary left right before John was born because the next section, you know, Mary's gone and John's born. But Mary leaves. But here's the gospel this morning as we close. Just like Mary, you can find favor with God in Christ Jesus. And the invitation this morning is not go out and be good enough, not go out and earn it, not go out and try to deserve it, is recognize your humble estate. Recognize your brokenness before the Lord. Recognize your need for a savior and believe. That's the goodness of God. That's the goodness of the gospel. And the only people whose soul can truly magnify the Lord are people like Elizabeth and Mary who acknowledge their lowly estate and are overwhelmed by the grace of God. So last question, what do we do with Mary? There's been heresies that have shown up all throughout the church age. You know, there's crosses in Rome that have Jesus Christ on the front and Mary on the back. Do we worship Mary? Do we pray to Mary? Do we view Mary as sinless and perfect? All of those things are false teachings. We don't do any of those things. What does Jesus do with Mary? He loves her as a mother. He takes care of her at the cross. He looks at John and says, behold your mother and mother, behold your son. Like he looks after her. He doesn't diminish her. We call her blessed just like the scripture says we will. But we don't pray to her. If you look at the rest of the gospels and Jesus's interactions with Mary, there's one time in Matthew where Jesus is teaching at a house and these people come up to Jesus and say, hey, your mother and your brothers are outside. And what does Jesus say? He says, who are my mother and my brothers? He says, those who do the will of my father, those are my mother and my brothers. So we don't deify Mary. We don't worship Mary. We call her blessed. We follow her example of faith. But then the last thing we do is we listen to Mary. And what did Mary tell us to do? If you remember in John chapter two, Jesus is at the wedding and he looks at her and says, woman, what does this have to do with me? She's like, Jesus, they ran out of wine. And Mary looks at the servants and Lloyd's been quoting this verse a lot. What does Mary say to the servants, Lloyd? Do whatever he says to do. That's what we do. We love We're grateful, we call her blessed, we cherish her faith, and we do whatever he, not Mary, the Savior, tells us to do. Amen? If you're in here this morning and you've never been at a place where you can say, my soul magnifies the Lord because he who is mighty has done great things for me, the good news this morning is he has in Christ. And you don't have to to be behave enough for it You don't have to work for it. You just have to believe it. That's such good news. And you can join in song with all of us and let your soul magnify the Lord because he's done great things for us. He's been born in the likeness of us. 
He's lived the life we should have lived and he's died the death that every single one of us in here deserve. Our only response is to break out in song and to do whatever he tells us to do, just like his mother told us to. Let's pray and respond singing Mary's song together. Father, we love you. God, as we close, we are a people. God, I love how in the Old Testament prophecies you tell us that you've, you've taken us out of the pit, you've, you've put us on solid ground, and it says you've put a song in our mouths. God, I can't think of a better song to end with this morning than the same song that Mary sang when the Savior of the world arrived. Our soul magnifies the Lord. Our spirit rejoices in God, our Savior. Why? Because he who is mighty has done great things for me. And God, I pray that if there's anyone in here that can't sing that personally this morning, that they would put their faith in Christ. They would stick around and talk to us about the gospel. God, we could lead them to have a personal relationship with Jesus. But God, we're grateful that you've given us this song to sing. And we respond like Mary did. God, humble and lowly and rejoicing in God, our Savior. It's in Jesus' name we pray.